Hi, this is Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Another session of Connecting the Dots podcast. Hey, everybody. I'm HF Mason. I'm a general surgeon here at Baptist Union County in New Albany, Mississippi, and I'm also our Chief Medical Officer. And hey, everybody. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, I am honored today that we have an amazing guest, Dr. Stephen Spear, which is the principal of the High Velocity Edge LLC, a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School, a senior fellow for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, a creator of an amazing software called C to Solve Gimba and Real-Time Alert System. The High Velocity Edge, as most people know, is this amazing book uh, that earned the Crosby Medal from the American Society of Quality. Uh, he also wrote many articles like Fixing Healthcare from the Inside, which won the Harvard Business Review McKinsey Award. And five of Dr. Spears' articles won the Shingo Prizes. Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System is a leading Harvard Business Review reprint and part of the Lean Canon. He's written for medical professionals and educators and annals of internal medicine, academic medicine, health service research for public uh, school superintendents and academic administrators. And for the general public in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Fortune and USA Today. His doctorate is from Harvard. His master's in mechanical engineering and in management are from MIT. And he earned a major in economics at Princeton uh, to earn his bachelor's. Welcome, Dr. Spear. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, it's okay if, if I call you Steve. Yeah, that'd work. I wouldn't recognize anything else. Well, <laughs> insulting nicknames, but Steve works good. <laughs> well, well, we are so incredibly grateful and thankful for you. Um, and, you know, our podcast, is, as I said, is called Connecting the Dots. And it, it's based on a kind of systemic thinking. I was a big uh, fan of Dr. Russell Acoff and, and that line of thought. And I recently heard you on a podcast, a friend of ours, uh, Mark Graben, and you talked about uh, a person that was a mentor for you, which his name was Mr. Oba, and he passed away in September 4th. But a lot of people in our community may not know who Mr. Oba was. So if you would be willing, share uh, a little bit about who he was, the impact he had on you. And you may even share um, the story about how he was wanting to connect people when he would do, do some tours. Hopefully that kind of helps set you up there. Yeah, thank you. Um, that, that, that's a, a question which uh, I could spend hours on answering, but I'll try to keep it to minutes. Uh, and, and if I don't, just you know, do the electronic equivalent of kicking me. Um, so anyway, quick background. Mr. Oba was a, a Toyota veteran who had had a lot of uh, operational experience uh, in Japan and foreign countries. The reason he was in the United States when he was in the United States is Toyota had adopted this strategy of uh, global localization. Um, you know. The, they first got noted as a uh, big uh, importer-exporter from Japan to the United States, and they decided that uh, really the best way to serve the market is to get close to the market. And um, for what it's worth, Toyota is now the second largest, I think the second largest automaker in the U.S., um, I think behind Ford in terms of units made. And with that, uh, they had to start building a, um, a supply network. Problem was uh, the way Toyota teaches their management system um, in Japan, it, it, it's like the karate kid. You know, you wax on, you wax off, you paint up, paint down, and and, and you get it. It takes a decade, but eventually you do get it. And um, that wasn't going to work um, across the Pacific Ocean with the number of people who had to be developed here. Anyway, Mr. Oba um, set up uh, a promotion office for the Toyota, Toyota's management system here in North America, originally centered around the Georgetown plant. And his job was to proselytize, explain, develop suppliers um, so that uh, they'd be um, able to uh, operate with the efficacy, the efficiency, the safety, the quality, et cetera, in North America that, that uh, Toyota had gotten used to in, in Japan. So anyway, that's his background. And quickly how we met, um, when I started my uh, doctoral studies. Uh, I went out to the West Coast to visit a high-tech factory with uh, this guy, uh, Kent Bowen, who was uh, my mentor and advisor. And uh, Kent had invited Mr. Oba to take the tour with us. And uh, what we found is as interesting, and, and bear in mind, uh, both Kent and I are pretty serious nerds, um, but as interesting as the product and the 
production processes were in this factory, what we found uh, far more interesting and amazing, actually, was Mr. Oba's ability to understand a system. And you start thinking about a system, because I'm not just talking about the uh, the nuts and bolts, the gears, the wires, the, the code, but the, the, this uh, very complex social technical system. It took him about 20 minutes to figure out um, how the pieces came together and where they didn't come together well, uh, where problems would occur, delays, defects, scrap, um, risk of injury, et cetera. And um, the, the validation that he had this like uncanny ability to look at a complex um, collaborative work system and figure out where it's going to go off the tracks, that he had the ability, is that we would walk through and then Mr. Oba would get back to the conference room and start um, schematically draw, drawing out his sense of how things happened and where they went off the, off the rails. And the executives who sort of, I think as a courtesy, were following us along, all of a sudden the reading glasses went on, the notebooks came out, the pen started scribbling notes. And, and that was the, the evidence that what Mr. Oba was saying was like eye-opening to them. So anyway, that's, uh, that's who he is and how we met. To your question about um, the impact he made on me, so I think it's a, it's a, a direct connection to um, healthcare because you think about what you all do, right? Which is uh, you have this really intellectually, emotionally, technically difficult work, um, highly collaborative, which um, is done for the purpose of improving the the state, the situation of somebody else. And oftentimes somebody else who um, is uh, not in a position to help themselves, you know, either their lack of knowledge, the impairment of illness or injury, whatever else it is. Um, So, I I mean, look, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but what you you do individually, but even more so what you do collectively is noble work. And um, what I realized looking at Mr. Oba and then having his thinking influence my thinking is I went into this Toyota stuff thinking the key was algorithms, that somehow they had developed some better math on how you um, control the flow of material and resources and machines as, you know, as parts take shape as they go through production. And, and that was my starting bias. And when it came to appreciate from the mentorship I had from Mr. Oba, is that that was all just tools. It was just tools, that, that, you know, whether it was a big multi-ton press or a screwdriver, it didn't matter, it was a tool. And the reason the tool was existed is because someone was trying to do something as part of a much larger system where individually and collectively what people are trying to do is create value that someone else would appreciate. And, and Mr. Oba had this like incredible capacity to see the system and understand where, um, by its structure or by its dynamics, the system was uh, ill-designed, ill-managed, ill-operated. And in all of that, what it was was uh, diminishing the potential of people to create value and diminish the opportunity for people who needed that value to benefit from it. So anyway, um, like I said, we we had a, a, a nice trip on the West Coast. The food and the wine is very nice. Um, and then, you know, I built a career on uh, really trying to decode Mr. Toyota and then uh, try and replicate what I learned from him elsewhere. I thought I thought one of the points that you made in the last podcast that was really interesting was he was at the back of a, a shipping dock and he asked the question, so whom did this come from? And they may have said something to the effect of, well, this came from subassembly. And I think he went on to say, no, no, no. Whom did it come from? Right. What is their name? And, and you can take that into a healthcare setting, you know, where someone says, well, where did the sample come from? It came from the lab. And the same question would have been asked, no, who did it come from? Yeah. What is their name? And how do they offer value? Am, am I saying that correct? Yeah, I'll tell you, that's a, that's a great example. Because you think about the colleagues you have in, um, in, in healthcare, you have people who are really hardworking just to, you know, even aspire to get whatever degrees and credentials they have. And they had to be, you know, wicked smart to do that sort of thing. And then, um, of course, they picked the career path they picked because they were highly motivated to do something. But you run the risk um, where people are defined by, um, I work in pharmacy, I work in labs, I work in uh, internal medicine, I work in uh, 
you know, uh, perioperative care, whatever, um, they, they end up defining themselves by their function in a silo. But, but, but of course, that's not why you all chose the careers you chose. You chose your careers because you said, you know, if I'm really good at what I do, then um, I can do something for somebody else that will be appreciated by that person and his or her family. So anyway, let, let me connect this back to Mr. Oba. So Mr. Oba, we go into this factory and there, there's huge distraction by the uh, sophistication of the technology, both product and process. And where does Mr. Oba want to start his walk through the, the factory? In shipping, which is like the least glamorous place in any factory, right? And where does he want to start in shipping? He wants to start with the, uh, the, the men and the women who are actually putting boxes on trucks, which is about the least glamorous job in the factory, uh, e even within shipping. And, and when we started getting into Mr. Oba's head as to why he wanted to do that, he said, this is the last person in this organization who touches the thing that the next person who will touch is the customer. He said, from the perspective of the customer, the person in shipping is the most important person here and everything else, everything else here um, exists and occurs for the benefit of the person in shipping so they can be a superstar in the eyes of the customer. And, and I, I got to say, until that point and probably since then, I don't think I've ever heard anyone celebrate the relationship between the shipping person and, and the customer receiving this at, at a box store. But, you know, anyway. So you take that further. So what did Mr. Oba then start asking? He said, well, the person in shipping, the box they put on the truck, where did it come from and from whom, to your point? And um, again, he, he, he didn't want to know um, from where like an abstract or from where like a silo or abstract like a function. He said, no, 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 you know, who sent this? And the answer was, it was uh, Mary. Now, it turned out Mary in Final Assembly, but it was Mary, and Mary was sending it to Frank. Now, you start thinking about the power of what Mr. Oba was doing, is that when Mary did her work, it no longer was the last piece of Final Assembly before the thing went to shipping. It was the last piece of her Final Assembly before her product went to Frank, so Frank could be appreciative of the work Mary had done to uh, make him successful. And likewise, when the thing arrived at Frank, it wasn't just something that, oh, those people in shipping sent to me. It was something Mary sent to him. And, and, and so as the day progressed and every time something showed up that he could put to good use to send to someone, someone else, say, ah, oh, Mary's really, she's rocking it today. So anyway, you, you carry this whole notion of um, uh, these complex collaborative processes being defined, um, not, I, I wouldn't say not by, and not even, not only by, but in addition to not, Defining them not only by task, not only by role, but by relationships. And, and look, look it, it's in your situations, right? Because, um, you know, we've had it with uh, family members who've been hospitalized. And, um, you know, whether it's Baptist or Beth Israel Deaconess or Mass General or anywhere else, Faulkner, Walter Reed, you know, they, they don't get care from Walter Reed Hospital or Beth Israel Deaconess or the, or, or, or the Baptist. They got care from Ann or Joe, right? You know, or, you know, um, or Dr. Mason or Dr. Lancaster. That's who they get care from. And, and, you know, and so why does the hospital exist? It's to make Dr. Lancaster look good, right? It's there to support the work he does bedside or it, it, it exists yeah. the work some nurse does bedside. And so now you start thinking, you take Mr. Oba's, uh, at, at, um, Mr. Oba's um, bias along, then you know, if Dr. Lancaster doing his work as a, as an internist is is bedside with a patient, um, the patient wants to know who the doctor is. The patient wants to know who the the dietitian is. The patient wants to know who the nurse is. Well, well, shouldn't the nurse want to know who the pharmacist is who's providing uh, medications? And shouldn't the pharmacist want to know, hey, when I sent you that pill, when I sent you that tablet, when I sent you that um, clear plastic bag of saline based solution, um. Did it make your job easier or harder? Yeah. Anyway, uh, just to finish up, just one recollection on this. Many years ago, when we first started taking these lessons from Toyota into healthcare, it was uh, part of a big initiative in the Pittsburgh community called the uh, Perfecting Patient Care System as part of the Pittsburgh Regional Healthcare Initiative. And um, the first place we started, probably because it looked most manufacturing-like, was in pharmacy. You know, because, you know, instead of nuts and bolts, it was pills and tablets. And uh, 
we kept coming back to the question, well, where does all this stuff go? Well, it goes to this unit, goes to the transplant on the fourth floor or whatever. And and so following Mr. Oba's sort of um, inspiration, we went to those places and started asking the clinicians um, how well the provision of medication worked for them. And, and very often it didn't work well. A, a lot of their work was, um, you know, um, um, you know, uh, hunting and gathering and pecking and dissing and that thing. And, and, you know, actually quickly getting the medication so they could tend to the patient, that, that was very difficult. And so, um, you know, again, following Mr. Oba's inspiration that it, these systems are really about the um, relationships which support the delivery of value to somebody. We started having the conversations in, in, the, in, the, um, in the pairs, the, uh, the pharmacist with the pharmacist technician, the pharmacist technician with the delivery tech, the delivery tech, with the person in nursing about what can I do? How can I present my work to you so your work can pick up in a smooth, efficient, effective, graceful fashion? And um, we're rephrasing that, you know, when I do my work as I currently do my work, um, what, uh, what about this exchange? What about this relationship feels compromising? What feels awkward? What feels dis difficult? Um, what feels non-graceful? And uh, what did you know? This conversation just revealed so much that was fixable. So, you know, we all have we have external customers and we have internal customers. And, and in, in healthcare, our patients they are our ultimate external customers. Yeah. But within the processes, and I, this morning I was trying, I was explaining to uh, one of my medical students is that you know this OR crew is my internal customer. I mean, I need to show up on time mm -hmm. so and get to work. Uh, I am their customer. They, they need to have the operating room set yep. up and they need to have the tools I need. And, and that's what we have to think about. We have to think about not our ultimate customer, but the, but the, the person that we're serving to help them do, do a better job. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you, I can relate to that. Back, back when we were working in Pittsburgh, you know, that example, we, um. I'll say it's wild, right? Especially in healthcare. Again, you know the the motivation of people, the mission of people, and if you don't think about systems defined by these relationships, how degrading the system can be to people who really have such a, you know, wildly important social aspiration. And um, so, uh, and this is exaggerating it slightly, but uh, you know. You have doctors during the day have some concerns about patient and they do a biopsy and the biopsy gets, you know, packaged in the appropriate way and it goes off to a lab where, um, you know, pathology does whatever pathology does. Now, um, if you ask, um, just focus on the pathologist for a moment, you say, again, an exaggeration, you say to the pathologist, what do you all do? They said, oh, well, we get samples. We get samples. And then we prepare the samples and we dye the samples and we put them on plates and we examine the samples. Then we write up a report. And so you, you start having this conversation with the pathologist. You say, well, how do you define your work? There, there's an input, which is a, a sample. There's an output, which is a report. And then there's a task in between and the task is very technical. And um, you have the conversation a little bit further though about the person who sent the sample wants it back. You know, why did they send the sample? Because uh, they were sitting across from a patient, and this this was a you know uh, breast tissue. So sitting across from a patient and her family, and uh, whoever that clinician was, is that they didn't have an answer. And, and in that room with them, in that conversation with them, was someone who had nothing but fear. That's all they had. They had fear, anxiety, worry, trepidation, um, and uh, when you start having the, the conversation with pathology, with that is the context. Well. Yeah, the report is a mechanism, but what does it do? What it does is it uh, provides certainty and clarity. And, and that's why the pathology, that's why the growth pathology department exists, is to provide clarity so that people know what to expect, people know what to do. Well, anyway, once the pathology, and, and look, this is nothing we taught them. These people came in like, like this. They, they realized it on their own. They said, oh, my gosh, you know, the reason I'm here is because someone has uncertainty, which I'm trying to introduce clarity. Then they started saying, Oh, you know, we, we've optimized, quote unquote, optimized these processes for cost, but we haven't optimized them for time. And I started th starting to think about how long someone had to wait for an answer from pathology. The answer was up to a day and a half. And then one, one guy says, 
holy crap, would I want to be the guy who's sitting at home worried about his wife or sitting at home with his wife who's worried a day and a half as to, you know, what her condition was. And so the head of pathology said, you know what, we're coming up with a new objective function. Our, our, our objective function now is a turnaround time, ideally instantaneously. Because if someone was worried enough to, to uh, um, order a biopsy and conduct a biopsy, when do they want that clarity? They actually wanted it before they did the biopsy. The whole reason they did the biopsy is because they had this uh, this aggravation, this antagonist. You know, so um, anyway, they, they did. They turned it around. It was like a day and a half down to uh, well within same same day results. And again, look, if someone was sick and needed treatment, they were sick and needed treatment. The thing is, they didn't they didn't have to go home and worry about it in front of the kids when the kids came home from school. They knew the same day. And they could prepare themselves. It was a beautiful thing. And again, it, it was all based on Mr. Oba's inspiration, which is we have to make sure we define our work by the relationships relationships we're in and um, how to better support those relationships. That's really fascinating. Um, so I had a good time reading your book earlier these last couple of weeks, and I was really struck by the way that Toyota trains its workers and then how you compared it to medical education and how we currently train um, doctors for, for the future practice of medicine. When I was in medical school, I sat on our uh, curriculum committee. And so I was involved in the development of our curriculum. And, you know, we thought we were being revolutionary with, with some of the changes that went forth back then. Um, and it got me really into medical education and, and how things are going. There was a book that came out uh, back in 2010 called Educating Physicians. They talked about the history of med medical education with it all being based on the Flexner report from 1910. So we had a hundred right, years right. of the same medical education system. And the main output of that system was trying to train physicians to be not just physicians for the healthcare workforce, but physician scientists um, to really yeah. be those that could uh, you know, produce the next cutting edge research. And which is why we have such a heavy emphasis on research in the U.S., but I would love to get your take on the problems that you see with medical education and how we could better structure it to match the needed outcomes from the healthcare system. Yeah, that, that, that's a a huge question. So I'll try to do it justice in a few minutes. I, I'm just I was just chuckling about the that report 1910. So 1910, ether was just coming into general practice to uh, anesthetize during surgery. Penicillin didn't exist. And uh, genetics were still at the level of the uh, Mendel's pea pods. Mm -hmm. You know, so anyway, just saying. Um, it's a little overdue. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it, it might have gotten a little ripe. But anyway, that aside. So um, look, I, I'll make quick reference to the, uh, the comparison I had training to work on the line at a non-Toyota facility and then the training I observed at Toyota. Uh, the punchline is this, which is, um, is it fixed input or fixed output? And what I mean by that is, do we train based on um, a fixed time and a, and, and a predefined set of experiences and then um, grade people, you know, you got an A, B, or C, um, or do we say, no, no, you know, what we want is everyone to be an A. You know, I mean, you, know, you start thinking about it. If I... Uh, if someone's working on your car, do you want the per person who installed the brakes to be the C brake installer, <laughs> the airbag? Do you want do you want the person who constructed the C airbag? No, you want the A airbag and the A, A braking system. And so what we observed in the Toyota uh, environment was um, very clear uh, struggle and effort on the part of those doing the training to define what skills, capabilities, understandings, knowledge, et cetera that per, a person needed to leave the training with to say they're competent for the next step, right? You know, look, they're not going to be a neurosurgeon after, you know, three weeks, but, you know, whatever the next step is after three weeks, that they had to be competent for it. And uh, that means that basically anyone who enters that pipeline who leaves it has to leave with an A. You can't leave with a B. I mean, why would you leave with a B or and certainly a C? That if you're leaving the pipeline, it has to be with an A. And so in that environment, then um, this question of fixed inputs, or fixed outputs. So the thing about fixed inputs is because you have different people coming into the process, if it's everyone has the same experience, then you get variation in outputs. You get A's, B's, and C's. 
if you're not willing to tolerate that, if you're only um, willing to tolerate ACE coming out, you know, first thing you have to do is, you know, do a whole lot of conversation and screening and make sure that people coming into the pipeline are the right people. But once in, you have to um, be flexible and adjust that um, the, the, the training you're giving to Dr. Mason is appropriate for Dr. Mason and different than, if it has to be different than the training you're giving to Dr. Lancaster, because what you need to learn, your preferred method of learning, et cetera, um, it's different. And, and so in, e in order to get you to the identical level of competency as physicians, we may have to teach you differently that accommodates your style of learning. For, for what it's worth, I, I don't think anything I'm saying on that is uh, foreign, right? Because let, let's say uh, two patients come in um, with the same condition, a playground injury, broken wrist, right? Um, e even then, you wouldn't necessarily uh, prescribe exactly the same treatment to both patients. Maybe one person is uh, more active or less active. One person is physically strong or less physically strong. You would still tailor the treatment to the patient, even if the starting condition was the same. Now, if the starting condition wasn't the same, you know, broken ankle versus broken wrist versus uh, something else entirely, you know, you would tailor the treatment because what you want is um, um, consistent outputs, right? Which is excellent care. And so, anyway, I think I think the analogy carries over. Which is, do I um, do I tailor the experience to achieve the objective, or do I allow the objective to vary because I'm not willing to tailor the experience? So, anyway, that's where that that thinking came up. Yeah. No, I thought that was really fascinating, and you know, it was tied to another part of the book where the experience of you bringing your child to the emergency department and having many different people examine and ask the same questions over over again and not talking to each other so that that silos point that you brought up earlier in yep. our discussion um and my question is even if we had the fixed output as, as opposed to the fixed input i don't think that would necessarily fix those silos and so my question is what needs to be fixed first? Is it our broken current processes in, in healthcare or the, the educational system? Or, or how would you go about addressing, uh, I guess, preparing a workforce for an ideal, ideal healthcare system that, that doesn't quite exist yet? Yeah, a great question. Um, all right, so let me start the answer by saying I'm somewhat hopeful. And I'll tell you why. Um, because it gets back to your point about connecting dots, seeing the system. Um, and in the example you have with my daughter, uh, playground injury, you know, compression, uh, buckle fracture, you know, kind of routine for a kid that age. Um, even something, you know, and I'm going to say this, you know, sort of with air quotes, something as simple as that is still a complex collaborative work, right? Because it was the administrative work of getting her registered and the medical work of triage and examination and then... Uh, it was imaging, et cetera. So I, th I think there were you know, 10, 12 different um, specialists who touched her. And so, um, but as, you, as your point in, in, and in my write-up about that, is that everyone operated as an independent practitioner almost. And the person maintaining the relationships actually in terms of this is what was done so far and this is what you need to know. Um, it was my daughter and me. Um, I, I mean, almost at the basic level of like, was the left wrist, not the right wrist. Now, you start thinking about why that happens is because um, everyone in that system was trained in their specialty, you know, whether it was the MD, the RN, the, 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 um, the PA, et cetera. But uh, no one had ever walked them through the system like the patient would see it, looking for the relationships like Mr. Oba would insist, right? And the way that it should have ended was my daughter um, with her pain relieved, the cast on and, and a referral in hand. And he said, well, if that, you know, that's the shipping, right? And if, if that's how you have to end up, what's the step immediately before that so that um, you can leave that way? And if uh, there's that step, what's the step immediately before that one and before that one? And, and I'm pretty well convinced that um, no one had had that walk through the system to look for the relationships amongst people and amongst specialties. So, you know, everything was, um, all right, we're done with triage go over to orthopedics, orthopedics, go over to imaging, imaging, go back to orthopedics. It was never, never about, you know, you're going from this person to that person. Anyway, the, the reason I'm hopeful, well, anyway, let me, let me tell you why I think that that's the case, is um, 
your your professions, um, the, the science and technology has advanced astronomically, astronomically, in the last 30, 40 years. And, uh, you know, you, you take any ailment, any condition that you treat today and go back and see what the state of the art was 30, 40, 50 years ago. And it was like, I, I don't know, it was like caveman science in comparison, right? Now, the thing about, um, you know, the science and technology of 30, 40, 50 years ago, while um, it was, you know, grotesquely disappointing to patients and their families, for the, from the perspective of a care provider, it was simple because there wasn't much you could actually do 50 years ago. You know, your, your diagnostic technology was limited. Your treatment technology was limited. And, and you know, you could lay on, lay on hands and provide, you know, some amount of comfort, but you really couldn't do much. And, and so, you know, go, going back to sort of the Marcus Welby metaphor, you know, the physician could know most of everything about medical science and could do most of whatever medical technology allowed. And everything else was in orbit around the doctor to uh, make, you know, more often him than her, but make him or her as effective or efficient in that one-on-one -on -one relationship they had with the patient. Now, here's what's happened is that, um, now, all right, so why does the training still look that way? If you think about who's in charge of the training, or you know, let's say 10, 15 years ago, they were people who grew up in the Marcus Welby mindset. You know, When they entered the pipeline, it made sense for everyone else to orbit them. So, um, and, and I think that's that's carried forward. Now, here, here's why I'm helpful. If you look at the people now who are entering the pipeline in their early 20s or exiting the pipeline you know, somewhere in their 30s, um, as children, they're already thinking about systems, right? Because um, you know, something like the iPhone, I think, is now, what, about 10 years old? Something like that. It's, it's amazing, right? But the thing is, if you're as they say, a native to the digital world rather than an immigrant like I am to the digital world, you're already thinking about systems because, you know, uh, an iPhone is not a phone. I mean, my kids don't even use it as a phone. I, I don't even know if, if, if they had to make a call. I don't know if they would know what to do. But for them, the phone is part of a system of which they're part, right? You know, because you've got the phone, you've got the apps, you've got the Wi-Fi, you've got the cellular, you've got to make sure you're on the same app with the same uh, permissions as your friends so you can send messages back and forth. So they're already thinking systems. And if, uh, you know, if you're a, a native to this digital world thinking about systems, then when you come into uh, an environment like yours, which is, you know, these wildly complex systems, when something busts, um, you might be more likely to say, geez, I wonder what's wrong with the system. It's like being at home. Oh, did the, you know, it's like, all right, when my computer doesn't work, I say, what's wrong with the computer? When my kid's computer doesn't work, they say, what's wrong with the Wi-Fi? Right, you know, that's the, that's the difference between someone who's got a narrow view and someone's got a system view. So my hope on this, both education and practice, is that those who are native to the digital world, their knee-jerk reaction when something doesn't work well is um, what's wrong with the system? And if that's their knee-jerk uh, question, line of inquiry, what's wrong with the system, then they're gonna wanna know what the system looks like. Like my, my, my kids, when they walk into an environment, they never ask how the phone works because that, that's sort of a black box. Them. But they always, what's the Wi-Fi password, right? They're, they're, they're thinking system. And, and so similarly, um, uh, in, in your environment, if a clinician is bedside and can't get something done, you know, the old mentality is, the Marcus Welby mentality is, uh, you know, why the heck weren't you supporting me properly? As opposed to what is it about the system that made it uh, impossible for you to know what I needed? Anyway, that, that's my uh, my bit of wishful thinking, hopefully not too uh, fanciful. I wanted to get your take on the current the current motivators of, of continuous improvement improvement in the healthcare setting. And and I read your paper, you know, from fifteen years ago, fixing healthcare today, and and that was a few years after the uh, you know the big report to Air as Human had come out, and, and you know it it. We just had to face the reality that our, our, our the quality of our healthcare was just not anywhere near it, where uh, near where it needed to be, and and we started asking ourselves, well, what what do we need to do? And you know, one was uh, we need market based solutions, and, and and then in your paper you said, no, 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 there are things that we can do right now, right, short of market based solutions, and that's where you talked about small continuous improvement, but now you know back then. 
nobody had ever heard the term value-based purchasing and, and, and things like that. But now, as value-based purchasing has, I mean, it's in the forefront, what, what is truly motivating us, physicians, hospitals, hospital systems, uh, into that continuous improvement? Is it, is it truly market-driven or is it, is it altruistic uh, motivation? I just want yeah. like to your thoughts on that. Well, uh, look, I, I'll boil it down, and then I'll explain why I boil it down this far. Um, look, I'm a big fan of markets. I teach at a business school, after all, and uh, you know, I follow sports. And the notion that um, organizations should have uh, metrics of performance by which they're judged, and that people should have a choice as to which organizations they interact, you know, with or not, you know, you should have a choice if you cheer for the Red Sox or the Yankees. You know, it, it, it's not in the Constitution, but it should be that you have that choice, right? And, and you should make that choice based on things that are important. Um, and, and similarly, you, you know, you can have this argument. I'm not going to have it now, but you should. I, I think you could have a reasonable argument that if you have um, all sorts of uh, choices in a, a, a free market-based uh, economy and society like we do, um, you should have an informed choice as to where you get your health care. I mean, you know, anyway, I, I don't want to go. Uh, this, this is not a this is not a philosophical or partisan argument. So anyway, let's tie it back. How, how do you motivate this? I, I guess the question you can ask yourself and um, your colleagues is. Um, I guess two questions. The first question is, you know, why did you show up today? And, and I think by and large, you know, if you give people a chance to really be self-reflective and, you know, self-appreciative, the reason they showed up today is to uh, do something helpful for somebody else. You know, whether it's a doctor who does uh, a very good uh, diagnosis and treatment or a nurse as part of that treatment plan, or even who's someone who shows up and, and says, I, I showed up to work in um, uh, nutrition and specialty uh, diets today because, you know, if someone's in the hospital, they should at least enjoy the experience as much as possible. You know, right? That's, that's why people show up. And then the question around improvement is, how much do you want your day to stink today? And people are like, well, what do you mean? Well, how much do you want it to stink? And like, I don't want it to stink. It's like, all right, well, then, then, then when you go to do your work, um, how happy are you that something which hypothetically could take three minutes takes an hour? Well, yeah, that would stink, and it does. You know, How happy are you that when you go to get a medication for a patient that it's not where you expected it to be, now you have to go do this hunt and peck around the unit to find which of the various automated dispensing drawers it's actually in. Oh, yeah, yeah that kind of stinks. And um, how about when you're trying to uh, get clarity on what to do for the patient next? You know, you can't really decode the order and finding out, um, uh, yeah, that kind of stinks too. And, and we, we did this in the, in the Pittsburgh environment. We... we we try to sort of quantify how much a day stunk for people by how much they spent time doing stuff that they didn't need to or want to or sign up to do. It turned out it was hours. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a simple example. So um, we were in, in a, um, a a nursing unit, you know, is uh, providing, you know, post-surgical care. And uh, at the start and end of every shift, uh, nurses would um, do a report out, which made perfect sense, right? But it was 45 minutes uh, at the start. That was an hour and a half out of a nursing shift. So, you know, you start quantifying how does the nurse's day stink. One, it stinks. I can't, I can't take a rest break. Two, it stinks. I don't have time for like a, 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 a lunch when I can kind of relax and just kind of let the stresses come out. Uh, it stinks because I have uh, unplanned uh, forced overtime. It stinks because actually during most of the 45 minutes I'm listening to one person talking to another about something that's not relevant to me. So we, we started the question with the, these nurses, which is how much does your day stink? And it was like, well, it's three hours of stink. It's like, all right, well, can we get rid of that stink? And um, it turned out, if you looked at it, it was because uh, no one had really um, given a lot of attention to how nurses on a, on a departing shift made report to nurses on an arriving shift. And it turned out a lot of that stuff could be written down and put into records. A lot of that could be just converted into a reliable shorthand and 45 minutes and 45 minutes got turned down into 15 and 15. Well, that, that's an hour of time back to nurses. And when you give an hour of time back, you really take away a lot of the stink of the day. 
And uh, similarly, um, you know, the pathology example I gave you before, which was uh, what makes your day stink? What makes my day stink? Sitting across from a patient, not being able to tell her husband and her um, whether or not she has breast cancer or of what type. Yeah, that would stink. How many hours of stink do you have? Day and a half's worth. All right, um, gross pathology, you know, what would you like to do? Oh, yeah, I want to take that stink down. And, and, and we, we, we kept going through this where um, that, you know, how much does your day stink? Um, there are a lot of ways to measure it, but uh, a pretty obvious way is uh, where time is lost. You know, when we did work with, uh, you know, emergency departments, you know, how, how does your day stink? It stinks because I, I, you know, I felt bad enough to uh, ask my wife to drive me to the hospital. That's two hours before someone actually examine, examines me. That's, that's two hours of stink. They are, yeah, ideally that should be zero. They got it down to 10 minutes, consistent 10 minutes, maximum wait time before you actually had, and this, is, this isn't like you're in the system. This is your being examined and orders are being written. It's phenomenal. But anyway, to your question about motivating this, um, uh, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of sort of highfalutin, esoteric, you know, quality of care, efficiency of care, social cost, et cetera. But you, you can always go with the, the, the selfish one, which is, you know, how much you, how much does your day stink and would you like to, it to stink less? All right, we can help you with that. Uh, one, one thing to build on that real quick, I want to kind of, kind of wedge this question in or comment in, is in the high velocity edge, you talk about, uh, you may not use this exact term, or maybe you do, I'm not sure, but there's very few companies out there that are consistent year in and year out. Uh, and you could say the same is true for sports. There's literally just a couple sports teams that they may not win the championship every year, but they're consistently high of wins. Yep. And so what's interesting to me is that that doesn't take as much note. People don't notice that as much. And I think a piece of that, this is just me thinking out loud, and let's use Toyota as the example, is Toyota has a deep, deep appreciation for the second law of thermodynamics, of entropy. Mm-hmm. That they realize that even though they may be doing great today, there's this force that's wanting to melt them away. Uh, yep. What do you agree with that? That thought, hundred percent, hundred percent. So yeah, yeah. Um, I can react to that. And this one, I will go quick. Look, the natural state of things is uh, entropy, right? Uh, disarray, and um, you know the way we solve for that uh, biologically is uh, the various. Uh, Processes which provide homeostasis, right? Well, you know, before I had, you know, when I had complete ignorance on this, I thought like homeostasis meant balance. And, and it doesn't mean balance, it means feedback. You know, it's like Steve has a donut, the body knows how to react to that. Steve hasn't had lunch, the body knows how to react to that. Steve runs up a flight of stairs, the body knows how to adjust, right? It's, it's, the, 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 the body, when it's, it's working well, can see stress. And respond to those stresses in a way that they don't become strains and they don't become, uh, you know, worse than that. And I think what Toyota figured is that, uh, if you've got, um, this, uh, wildly collaborative work of, uh, designing cars, designing factories, building factories, running factories, et cetera, you know, people get distracted by the car. For me, the miracle is the factory that 3,000 people show up to work every day and they can make a car one time. That's amazing. The fact they can do it every 55 seconds. It's, it's like, it, it's all right, when the Hebrews are going through the desert and they're getting mana six days out of seven, less miraculous than a car every 55 seconds as far as I'm concerned. Because the, the mana, that was the almighty, but the car is just people, right? And uh, yeah, and, and so where does that come? You know, how do you not get entropy in a factory? Um, and it turns out it's the same way you don't get entropy uh, in, in a healthy biological system, is that um, the Toyota people are, are wicked concerned that... Um, that uh, they organize the work of the individual, they work the, organize the work of the collective in such a way that you're seeing problems, um, ideally, the moment they occur in the place they occur, and that immediately triggers a response, both to contain the problem, but also because it's uh, uh, people and not just inanimate objects, that not only does that instantaneously uh, trigger uh, a containment, but it triggers an investigation, and the investigation, so you not only do you have self-correcting, but you have... Um, self-improving. And, uh, and again, you know, isn't, isn't that biologically what we've observed? That's the sort of the, uh, 
the brilliance of biological systems is that they have all these mechanisms which are part of uh, you know these autonomic systems. We never have to think about it at all, right? You know, blood sugar control, you know, never think about it. Blood blood pressure, never think about it, et cetera, et cetera. And it's only when those things start to break down that then, then we have different types of illness, which we actually have to pay a lot of attention to. And so what Toyota's attitude on organizations was um, similarly that the, the natural state of things is to tend toward the entropy. And the, the way you keep the entropy at bay, the way you keep yourself from tumbling into that entropic situation is by um, having um, a fast, frequent, uninterrupted feedback, which tells you where to react. And uh, anyway, so I, I think I think that this is sort of uh, to tie it together. You know, we were talking before about um, relationships. And mapping the relationships in a system is really talking about its structure. Who's dependent on whom for what? And this issue of feedback now talks about the dynamics you overlay or insert one or the other um, into that system so that when you have the structure, which is defined by relationships, you can see early often where the relationships are being compromised so you can restore them. And if you get Mm -hmm. a good combination, the right structure overlaid with the right dynamics, um, not only do you have healthy bodies, but you have healthy social systems too. Yeah, that's great insight. And I know that Dr. Lancaster has one more question here in a minute about uh, uh, software that you uh, kicked off. But I-, I wanted to ask one more question because, you know, the worst that'll happen is people will shut the podcast off. I want, <laughs> I want to ask the question anyway. Is uh, we, um, we promote among our 11 uh, guiding principles, one of them is scientific thinking. Yep. And one of the things that we do to encourage scientific thinking is something called the improvement kata or c- came out of Toyota kata. And the coaching yep. kata, and and you talked about when you were doing your dissertation, uh, you were always having Ken Bowen and Mr. Oba pull on you, and and at one point Mr. Oba even told you, "Don't think, just do." You know, right, right, right. Yeah. And if you would, because um, I think that there's a connection there with our scientific thinking. Can you elaborate a little more on that? Yes. So so. Look, you guys are in professions which are rooted in the scientific method, and it's not just the uh, the science of of the, the the medical science, the technological science you have, but it's sort of the bedside science, which is you have a a person who's got an ailment, and you, you take a history, and um, you gather data, and that already informs a hypothesis, as it were, which is you know you have some definition of normal. This person is presenting in some way abnormal. And uh, you look at the data, and then it informs this uh, um, diagnostic process of trying to come up with a hypothesis as to why they might be feeling the way they're feeling, why they might be having the experience they're having. And then the next thing you do after constructing that hypothesis about cause and effect, you construct another set of hypotheses about um, you know, what you all call treatment, corrective action, whatever it is, but action outcome, right, which is You've constructed a hypothesis about cause and effect. Now you construct another hypothesis about um, action outcome, right? So some action you can take, which will get to the cause, right? So now, now you've got sort of these linked hypotheses. But then, you know, what, what good sort of bedside practice is, is to say, well, it's all hypothesis. You know, uh, Richard Feynman once said a hypothesis is nothing but a best guess. So then what you do is you do treatment. But, you know, particularly for things which um, are uh, more serious than not, treatment is always coupled with follow-up. And, and that, of course, is the essence of the, the scientific method, right? Which is you come up with your best conceptual understanding of something, but that's not enough to say you actually know. You actually have to do something to get feedback uh, from the doing by the doing. You have to get feedback to find out um, about what you're correct and about what you're incorrect. Now, bringing that back to, um, you know, generalizing that. So, Mr. Oba's concerns were not um, abnormalities, aberrations, uh, physical, biological ones, but they were aberrations, uh, abnormalities, problems in these very complex dynamic systems called organizations and enterprises. And Mr. Oba's attitude was that um, no matter how long you sat and thought, you never could be sure. And the reason you never could be sure is when you're thinking all you're doing, and this is important, all you're doing is constructing a hypothesis. But until you do something, 
maybe it's something at scale, maybe it's something at a pilot, maybe it's something at a mock-up or a prototype, but until you do something, you don't know if you're right or and you, and you certainly don't know if you're wrong. And so that's why, that's why Mr. Oba was into this very, very fast, um, uh, short cycle time, frequent experience of doing, so you could um, generate a hypothesis, refute it, update it, generate it, refute it, update it, da 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 and, 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 and like I said, I think that's what you all do with um, patients, that you have ways of constructing an idea and then validating or refuting it. And actually, that ties back, right? You know, we we're talking about the um, example with uh, gross pathology. Well, when, when that patient is uh, being talked to by her doctor, and that doctor has a hypothesis, right? Which is, you know, you're having certain symptoms, you're having, you're presenting in a certain way. I have a hypothesis of a certain type of ailment, which is why I'm doing the biopsy. And, um, the, the, you know, and, and closing that loop is a scientific method of, I'm gonna do the biopsy, I'm gonna send it to pathology, they're gonna send me back a report, and either they will validate or re refute my hypothesis. And based on that, that learning cycle, I can move on to the next step with the patient. I think that's really interesting and ties in well to what we were talking about earlier with entropy and and it also ties into some of the work you were talking about that you were doing before the podcast when we were just chatting. Um, yeah, I was a physics major in undergrad. Uh, one of the things we learned about was the second law of thermodynamics and, and one of the things we learned about was something called Maxwell's demon uh, from James Clerk Maxwell, his thought experiment of trying to reduce entropy um, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of that, that product that you were discussing about getting that rapid feedback early on and potentially trying to reduce the, the entropy within the organization. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing in that respect with identifying problems early? Yeah, so um, we created some software highly influenced uh, by Toyota and the idea of an Andon cord. And I'll mention it now, product placement warning. Um, it's uh, people want to see a little video demo of it. It's called uh, C to Solve, you know, S E E T O S O L V E, C to Solve.com. Anyway, um, so we were talking earlier and saying there, there are two things that are so critically important. One, you know, connecting the dots, seeing the system, you know, that's, that's relationships. And, and, and you have to know what the relationships in a system are um, to really appreciate its structure. And then also, um, you know, part of a relationship is not only the structure, you know, I have a relationship with you, you have a relationship with someone else, um, but it's the dynamics, it's the feedback built in. So one of the things we um, observed in a, a lot of the healthcare work we've done is one, the relationships are not well mapped out. You know, and it, it gets to our conversation, you know, w w where did this medication come, come from? Uh, somewhere in pharmacy, where's pharmacy? I don't know, but all right. So the relationships aren't well mapped out. And the other part is that there's not good feedback. That if a nurse walks into a med room and needs a particular medication and it's not there, how the heck does he or she tell anybody? Say, like, oh man, I got to make a phone call. I got to, you know, it's like, so the, the, the dynamic is not so good. So anyway, we said that that certainly doesn't, that, you know, we're talking about how much does your day stink? Well, for a nurse walking into a med room and the medication not being there, that really um, multiplies the stink of the day. So anyway, what we did is we, uh, you know, it, so our, our inspiration on this was uh, Toyota, which has this idea that if an associate is building a car and uh, the prop, the um, necessary materials aren't there, that stinks. And if that and and if that associate is experiencing that type of stink, they should be able to pull a cord. It's called an andon cord. It means basically a light board, um, where a light goes off, a little music gets played, and it says to their team lead to come over and say, um, Dr. Lancaster, you know, what's the problem? What's the stink? And how can I be helpful? And what we realize is that this is part of compressing the entropy in the Toyota system is that if someone has a moment of stink, they have a way to call it out with like out a second thought and someone coming over to see how they can be helpful to reduce the stink, reduce the entropy. So anyway, we said, well, where, where could you have such a thing in a hospital? Well, in a factory, it's easy because people work more or less in the same location. You can string a cord and they can pull it down. So what we did is we um, created these very simple apps, which uh, ride on a cell phone or a tablet or whatnot. And the idea is in, uh, I don't know, it's like 10 seconds. Someone can indicate with, uh, I think it's like three taps. Um, you know, it's my phone, so it knows who I am. And because I'm doing it now, it knows what time it is. I say, I'm in room 303. I'm missing a medication. 
And this is the medication I'm missing. And, and, and boom, that's the Andon cord pull. Immediately, an alert goes to uh, the responder to say in pharmacy, say, hey, I'm missing that. You know, and, and, as it, and it pops up to say, ooh, I didn't know Steve was missing that thing. I'll, I'll, I'm sorry about that. But the other part of our Andon system is uh, because this is all quick, easy, and digital, not only can we get the one-to-one one, one -one reports between the reporter and that first responder, pharmacy, labs, facilities, et cetera, we can give the person who is responsible for the system a heat map of what type of problems are affecting whom, where, and when. And uh, look, look I, you know, just to, just to think about the, uh, the value there is, um, you know, you have your medical directors and your unit managers, et cetera, heads of this and that. If you just did a pop quiz right now and called them up or found them in the hallway and said, hey, how are things going for your uh, colleagues today? They'd have no answer on that. They'd have no answer. And the, re the reason is it's not because they don't care. They care a lot. The reason they don't know is because their colleagues are distributed and they're mobile and keeping track of what's going on. I mean, it's, even if you, there's no line of sight as to what's going on. And so the only way to know what's going on is, is, is to interact with people, but you can't interact with a person who's on the left side or in the east wing when someone else is on the west wing. And so um, where we see the, the, the huge value of this uh, portable Andon system, um, kind of the, the stink reducer, the entropy compressor, is that for the person who's uh, judged by how well the system she or he is responsible for, they get real-time visibility as to what's going wrong. And if they know what, if they have real time visibility, kind of, kind of the heat map dashboard they get, they have real time visibility as to what's going wrong. They can act sooner than later. They can act uh, more right than less right, and um, uh, be much more helpful. So anyway, we, we've um, I appreciate you asking about this. We've had this at a a couple of sites already, and you know, for the for the the system managers who use the data well, it's phenomenal because they they have clarity which they've never had before. And with the clarity, they can they have um, the ability to have informed action, which they've never had before either. So uh, huge return uh, anyway, huge value add for uh, for people. Well, I just want to kind of kind of land the plane here and just say once again, uh, uh, Steve, thank you so incredibly much. Not only for the many great works that you've written, and and I guess I would be amiss if I didn't ask this question because I'm curious anyway. Are not that you would have to tell us or anything. Are you working on any additional books that might be come out in the future? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, working on something um, with a, a buddy of mine. He, he's an IT nerd, and I'm a mechanical engineering nerd. But it gets back to the same. Look, look what, what's the common problem here? Which is um, we're asking people to do work which is uh, increasingly co collaborative in systems which are uh, bigger and bigger in complexity and scale, and um, they lack the ability to see the system of which they're a part and understand the relationships that are uh, that are essential to the system. So we're writing a book about complex systems and the uh, the structure and dynamics you need to cultivate in order to have high performance and, and great experience. So uh, with COVID, I've got plenty of time to write, so we're working on that. <laughs> That's the next project with this uh, the guy I'm working with is fellow Gene Kim, who's um, he's got an organization called the IT Revolution. And uh, anyway, we're trying to move that ahead. Well, we uh, I can I know I speak for both Dr. Lancaster and Dr. Mason when I say we, we are so incredibly grateful and and thankful for you that you were so kind and willing to come on and and, and share your thoughts with us. And I, uh, you know, I, I love systems thinking, but when you put it on the uh, the relationships there, especially since we are so involved with TWI job relations. Yep. That just had a really big impact on me. So I just want to say on behalf of Baptist and on behalf of all, all of us, thank you so much. And I'm just so incredibly grateful for you. Oh, well, I, I, I do appreciate that. And um, thank you for making time. I, I just want to return the thanks. Look, in general, I think all of us should be grateful that people pick careers that you all have picked. Um more so, you know, look, we're, we're recording this at the end of this, uh, not election day, election season, election experience, where if you listen to the pundits, uh, you think the natural state of human affairs is to be at each other's throat all the time. I mean, I, you know, I feel like I'm in the opening scenes of 2001 A Space Odyssey, where the monkey creatures are clubbing each other. And, and 
Yeah, and and maybe that's politics has to be like that because you got to appeal to the most angry fringes. But um, I mean, you, you, when when you all and your colleagues show up at work every day, you, you, you prove that's a wrong view of how we have to interact. What's normal for interaction? Your daily work is evidence, evidence, testimony every single day that the uh, the more natural state of affairs is to do something that other people appreciate and want to do something for which you feel appreciated in return. It, it, anger is not the normal healthy state for us. That's right. Um, it just isn't. A anyway, um, you know, as, as much as what you all do is uh, socially vital under normal circumstances, certainly the circumstances we've been in, the, I don't know, the last whatever, it, it, it's, it's proof that that experience is not the normal one for us. And I hope it's uh, provided some sort of azimuth check as to what we should actually be doing day to day. So anyway, let me return the thanks uh, for that and for the invitation today. Thank you very much.